All right, I'm going to invite you all to come on in. Uh, if you're working on a puzzle, you can keep working on the puzzle. I know Miriam had a moment of panic there. She's like, I'm not done yet. So you can keep working. <laughs> I know, Justin. I've been struggling with that one for the past two days, that ball with the little maze going on. Uh, we're going to start off this morning with a little bit of a race. So I'm going to get, Chris has already kindly volunteered, I think. So I'm going to call Chris up. Uh, I'm going to call Danny up. Uh, and I'm going to call, is there a, a kid under, let's say, the age of 12 who knows how to do a Rubik's Cube? Nice try, Walter. Aiden, come up here, Aiden. I knew it was going to be Aiden. I saw the video. All right. Don't start yet. So these are all going to mix up. We're going to do a couple races. All right. I'm sorry, Aiden. This one's a little stiff, so you got a little bit more of a challenge against you. But I'm sure you can do it. You got, yeah, young, strong fingers. All right. So on the count of three, uh, you guys will start, and we'll see you can solve the cube the fastest. All right? One, two, three, go. It's going. This is a really good spectator sport. Just watching the solving of the Rubik's Cube. There you go, yeah. Let's get some cheering. Pick your favorites. I think uh, Chris is a little rusty, so he's trying to shake this off. Danny's just like fingers of lightning over there. It's not looking great for you, Chris. I'm going to just say that now. I think Danny's already got the white solved. Aiden's almost got the white solved. Thanks. I yeah, I'm just, you know. Mike, you know, you're an encourager. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know you do well under pressure, so I'm putting some pressure on you here. Oh, Danny's like, he's going now. He feels it. He knows it's coming soon. Danny's done. Are we going for you can keep going, keep going. Aiden's getting close too. Oh, hey, Chris solved the white. Chris has solved the white. Did you? Oh yeah, oh yeah. And I screwed the white up again. Restart. Oh, Aiden's, Aiden's tapping out. All right. Well, good job. We'll mix it up again. So mi oh, mix it up again. We got another race for you. I had a, ooh, this is super, super loose. Holy cow. I feel like it's just going to fall apart. There you go. All right. <laughs> Chris is still working. We'll let Chris start with an advantage here. All right. But I'm going to throw a little bit of an obstacle in your way, okay? So you're going to race this time, but you're only allowed to use one hand. Even me? Even you. Only one hand, okay? You can use the table, you just can't use your other hand. All right? You guys ready? This is gonna be, this is gonna be fun. All right, three, two, one, go. Wow, way more, way slower this time, eh? Aiden's got like the really stiff one. There you go. You spinned it. There you go. Spinned it. That wasn't proper grammar. You spun it. 
You just put it on the table. Go like this. Now Or use your body. Yeah, like Chris is doing. <laughs> We're getting there. Danny's almost got the white. Just let me mix them up for everyone. I'm better at that. You're better at the mixing? Yeah. I can feel the frustration already, which is what's the goal of this whole thing. <laughs> yeah. It's working perfectly, Walter. <laughs> Danny's getting, getting there. Oh, Chris, you're doing pretty well over here. He's almost got the white solved. He's almost done it quicker with one hand than he did with two. <laughs> Aiden's still having a tough time. All right, Danny's got the white. <laughs> Two minutes. Oh, Jared's timing. Did you time the first one? No. Oh. Unfortunate. All right, we're going to stop it there because we got to move on here. This took a little long. We're going to declare Danny the winner. Good job, Danny. You almost had the white. But I almost had it with two hands. You, you almost had it with two hands. Yeah, you can do better with two hands. All right, I have a question for you. How many of you felt frustrated doing it with one hand? Aiden did. Chris did. You weren't frustrated? Even though you were like 100 times slower doing it with one hand? All right, well, let's give a hand for our volunteers. Can take it with me and to you can take it with you if you want and keep practicing. You can take it with you if you want to practice with your one hand. All right, so we threw an obstacle in their way, and we could tell there were some visible signs of, of frustration uh, going on. We've already had Justin cry out in frustration over the uh, ball that he's still working on over there. How many of you doing the puzzle right now have felt some frustration already? Doing, yeah, yeah, there's a few hands. Yeah. <laughs> See, the, the, hi, Michael. Do you feel frustration? <laughs> <laughs> the, the thing with these puzzles is some of them don't really take particularly uh, a skill. As long as you just keep working at it and keep persevering through, then eventually you can get uh, quite good at it, especially with those puzzles that are happening at the back at there. It doesn't require any particular skill to do a puzzle. You just have to keep <laughs> plugging away, plugging away. Your skill is perseverance. You don't give up. You just keep going and going, and eventually you will have a finished product on your hand. And so the people that we've had with these Rubik's Cubes um, were able to do it quite quick with two hands. Well, one of them was able to do it really quick with two hands. Some were a little slower. Some were still working at it with two hands. Uh, but once you threw one hand, then it took uh, a while for them to, to get it. There's some perseverance that was needed. If we had given them more time, I'm sure eventually they could have finished it with one hand if they just kept persevering. 
And so now as we're going to go into our series in Revelation, we've seen actually throughout Revelation that John has been encouraging the churches, the seven churches, to keep persevering because they are facing great persecution and great suffering. And so John is telling them, just keep going, keep persevering, keep persevering. And he gives them some encouragement. And we're going to see some of that encouragement today in Revelation chapter 14. So I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles up to Revelation 14. We'll be reading out of the New Living Translation. You can also open it up on your fancy Bible apps as well if you prefer to go that way. We will have the words on the screen as well. And while you're turning to that, uh, this passage requires us to talk a little bit about chapters 12 uh, and 13. And 12, 13, and 14, we get a lot of these big images and symbols that have been quite often misinterpreted throughout, uh, throughout our modern times, mostly. And so we're going to have to reclaim some of these images. So while we're turning to 14, uh, we'll talk a little bit about chapters 12 and 13. So in chapter 12 and 13, we have these three characters that are introduced, and they form this kind of unholy trinity. In chapter 12, we see this dragon that John describes as having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. And John does the work for us in this one and says this dragon is uh, Satan, the devil. He says that right in chapter 12. And so Satan, this dragon, uh, ends up in a battle with God's angels, uh, which he loses and gets thrown down to earth and becomes reigning over earth there. So we have the dragon. In chapter 13, we get introduced to other characters. One character is a beast that comes out of the sea. And the beast is described as also having seven heads and ten horns, but this one has ten crowns on its head. And John describes this beast as having the, looking like a leopard, but with the feet of a bear and the mouths of a lion. And this beast is given authority by the dragon to rule over earth and to wage war against God's people. And John describes one of these heads, which you can see in the metal of that Lego character, as having a mortal wound in its head from which no one thought it would be able to recover. But somehow, miraculously, it did. And so people thought this beast was unstoppable and started pledging allegiance to it. The third beast that we see is the beast of the land. And it is described as looking kind of like a lamb. It had two horns, but it had the voice of, the, of a dragon. And it was given the same authority as the beast of the sea. Uh, and it could even do miracles like call fire down from heaven. And it made a statue of the beast of the sea and demanded that everyone bow down and worship this statue. And if they did not worship it, then you would be killed by this beast. And it also demanded that everyone be given a mark on their hand or on their forehead. And it was the mark of the beast. And without that mark, they could not buy or sell anything. And it says the mark of the beast is 666. So that's chapters 12 and 13. 
And we were presented with a lot of symbols that have been uh, a little misused uh, throughout our modern time through your, this is your $10 word of the day, dispensationalism, has used these symbols to try to apply these things to modern uh, things. So we have these two, these two beasts of uh, the sea and the land, and people always try to apply this to, oh, who's this antichrist, who's this beast? And often it is applied to whoever is the current president of the United States at the time. But we need to understand that John is writing this book to seven churches, to people during a particular time. And so why would John write about some president of a country that doesn't exist yet? Why would these people care about that in the middle of their persecution, persecution and suffering? And so we have to look at these symbols a little more historically. So we're going to try to reclaim some of these images before we get into 14 so we can understand what John is saying in chapter 14. So in John's historical time, scholars believe that this beast of the sea was Rome. So the empire has authority over earth and has conquered most of the known world and it has been killing God's people, the Christians, because they refuse to worship the emperors. We've talked about this emperor worship at the beginning of our series. So if they refused to bow down to the statue of the emperor, they would often be arrested and tortured and even killed. And so they view the sea beast as Rome. This reference to the uh, mortal wounds that it had, as you saw in the Lego, he had the sword in his eye. Uh, they believe this is a, actually a historical event that happened. There's Nero was the emperor of Rome, and uh, they started getting some rebellions against him. In fear, he ran away. He saw all his officials and his guards starting ditching him. And so in a last ditch attempt to be avoided, uh, to avoid being arrested, they, he asked someone to take a knife and stab him in the throat. And so there's this mortal wound to the head area. And Nero was the last one left in this whole reign of his family. There was no heirs that he had to take the throne. So four people who thought that they should be emperors started battling with each other. And with this, all this infighting in Rome, as well as barbarians outside of Rome trying to defeat Rome, people thought for sure the Roman Empire was done for. And yet somehow one emperor rose to the throne and brought stability and power back to Rome. It was a miracle they viewed. And so they thought Rome was unstoppable. And so they believe that this is what John is referring to when he says uh, the sea beast with this wound. The other beast, the land beast, people view to be actually the Roman officials. So while Rome instituted emperor worship and said you have to worship the emperor, it was the officials that actually carried all this out. It was the officials that made the statues of the emperors, the officials that said worship this statue, and the officials that would arrest you and kill you if you didn't do this, which is describing that land beast. And so they believe that this was um, the officials. The third symbol that we need to reclaim is this mark of the beast which is said to be uh, the number 666. And this is another one that people always freak out about trying to make it about modern times. It says you have to have it on your hand and your forehead. And without it, you can't buy or sell. So anytime something new about like money came out, people would say, oh, that's the mark of the beast. When barcodes first came out, people were saying, this is the mark of the beast. And so the end is near. 
Uh, whenever the first concept, uh, if, I don't know if you guys heard this, but they're trying to develop chips that you embed into your hand, and then you can just use that to pay for things. When the idea first came out, people said, oh, that's the mark of the beast. It's in your hand. Uh, and I'm, you can be well assured that when it actually comes out, people are going to say, the end is near. It's the mark of the beast. Don't get the chip. But again, why is John writing about barcodes and chips to these people who, they're in heaven right now. They don't care about how we're trading money and things. So again, we have to look historically. We have the number 666, and as we've seen before, numbers mean something in Revelation. We've already, I think we've talked about the number seven as being the number of perfection, of completeness, the divine number. Six is one less than seven, so it is the imperfect number. It actually is a number of humanity. And so you have three sixes is the ultimate expression of humanity. These things that the beasts are doing are not God's work. They're the ugliness of humanity at its worst doing these things. And the reference to buying and selling, they believe, is uh, the coins that they used. So just like our coins have images of the queen on them, the Roman emperor's coins had an image of the emperor. And on the forehead of the emperor said the words, Lord and God. It was the emperor's claim to being Lord and God of the people. And so this is what they believe it is. It is the coin uh, that they have. And then the reference to arm and forehead is something that we're going to touch on in chapter 14. Okay. Those are three images. Are we feeling a little settled about those images? Do we understand? Feeling all right? Just lots of blank looks. Okay, let's just keep going. We'll keep plowing through. All right. So we go into our passage finally, Revelation 14, and we're going to read verses 1 to 5 to start here. So after he talks about the mark of the beast, his number is 666, John goes on to say, Then I saw the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of a mighty ocean waves or the rolling of loud thunder. It was like the sound of many harpists playing together. This great choir sang a wonderful new song in front of the throne of God and before four living beings and the 24 elders. No one could learn this song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. They have kept themselves as pure as virgins, following the lamb wherever he goes. They have been purchased from among the people on the earth as a special offering to God and to the lamb. They have told no lies. They are without blame. So we're running into some more images, images that we have actually already seen throughout this series so far. We have the 144,000, which if we remember back to earlier in Revelation, were the martyrs who were killed for their belief in God and whose prayers were mixed with the incense brought before God and hurled back down to earth. We have the four living beings and the 24 elders, which were the people of God, 12 and 12 equals 24, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples. So we have Israel and the church, the complete people of God. And they're there again before the throne of the Lamb, before Jesus' throne. And we also have a name written on their foreheads. We've just seen that the mark of the beast is on the forehead head or the hand. And these people 
are already compared to chapter 12 and 13. Throughout 14, John is comparing God's side with the beast's side. So we've already seen in chapter 12 and 13 this unholy trinity. You have the dragon, you have the sea beast, and you have the land beast. And now John's going to talk about the actual trinity where you have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And the dragon and the uh, sea beast and the land beast, they have their followers. And now we see God and his followers, the 144,000 surrounding the throne. And so now in chapter 14, John is going to show that there's an important choice. Daryl Johnson points out that uh, the question that is asked is not whether or not we will be the disciple but who we will be a disciple of. And these are the two choices that John is presenting. Will you be a disciple and take the mark on of the beast, be the disciple of the dragon, of the world, of the Roman Empire, or will you be a disciple of Jesus and God the Father? In chapter 13, John lays out the reality of his people that he's writing to. Yes, Rome is in charge of the earth for now, And yes, many of you have been persecuted and suffered and died because you refused to bow down to the emperor. And more are going to come. More people are going to suffer and more people are going to die because they refuse to bow down. But you need to persevere and continue through. And he's going to show why you need to continue through here in chapter 14. And so the comparison is set off right off the bat. You have 144,000 people worshiping God. Just like we saw in Wally's message a few weeks ago. And we remember they're martyrs. They're people who refuse to worship the emperor. And so they were killed for it. And now they're before the throne of God. And they have a different mark on their heads. The people who worship the emperor have the mark of the beast showing that their allegiance and they're owned by Rome and the emperor and the world. And these people have a mark on their forehead which says it's the name of Jesus on their head and the name of God the Father, Yahweh, is on their head. And it shows that their allegiance and they are owned by God, not the world. Bruce Metzger points out this contrast and he says, it's always a choice between the power that operates through inflicting suffering, that is the power of the beast, and the power that operates through accepting suffering, namely the power of the lamb. Violence is the way of the world. The world says, oh, you're getting in the way of something that I want, I'll kill you. You're getting in my way, I'll arrest you. I will cause harm and I will step over you to get where I want to be. That's not the way of Jesus. We've remembered the way of Jesus this morning as we took, the elements aren't there anymore, as we took communion. The world says it is all about selfish ambition, but the way of Jesus is suffering on the behalf of others. Eugene Peterson says, killing the opposition is the sea beast's way of solving its problems. It's not ours. Ours is endurance and faith. Ours is perseverance and suffering just like Christ has suffered. The decision of discipleship is given in the mark. The world, those who follow the world receive the mark of the beast and those who follow God receive his name 
on their foreheads. And so the question is, who are you owned by? Are you owned by the world or are you owned by God? John here with his, uh, the mark of the beast is on the hand or the forehead. And he's using an image that was uh, familiar to his Jewish readers. And it's called the tefillin. And they still use it today. In Exodus and Deuteronomy, God gives his people a command to bind on their arms and on their heads uh, his law. And so out of this came the practice of the, the tefillin. So you can see he's got a cord wrapped around his arm up to a box on his head. Sometimes there's a box on the arm as well. And inside these boxes are pieces of paper or back during John's time scrolls that would have uh, the Shema on it. And the Shema comes out of Deuteronomy 6. And so those papers or those scrolls will say uh, in Hebrew, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so it signified that you worship God and only God because there's no other gods. Your mark of allegiance was in the box on your arm and the box on your head. And so John is using the image of putting the mark of the beast on the places where this was supposed to be, where God in Deuteronomy and Exodus said to put his law on their arms and on their heads. It's replacing their allegiance. You're either aligned with the world and with the beast and the dragon in Rome, or you're aligned with God and with his people. These people have kept their allegiance to God. They have the seal on their head, and so they are set apart or holy. And be, their specialness is shown by the fact that they can sing a song that only they can sing. No one else can sing this song. If people had the mark of the beast, they were unable to sing it. And so these people that can sing this song, John describes as having three characteristics of these people who have persevered. First, that they are as pure as virgins. And John's not saying that they haven't had sex. We know John's very fond of symbolism and metaphors. And he's using a common one that was used throughout the Old Testament. Sexual immorality was used to talk about uh, idol worship. And so again, he's talking about this mark on their foreheads. They haven't participated in sexual immorality or AKA idol worship in this case. They haven't bowed down to the emperor. They haven't worshiped anything other than God. And so the question that we ask ourselves is, what does the mark on our heads say? What is it that we are bowing down to? Does the mark on our foreheads match that of the 144,000 that says Jesus and Yahweh, that's who I pledge my allegiance to? Or does it say wealth or popularity or friends or sex? What does the mark on our foreheads say? Their first characteristic is they've kept themselves pure. Second, he says they follow the lamb wherever he goes. It was the same call that Jesus gave his disciples when he was on earth, follow me. It was the same call he gives us today, follow me. They don't pursue their own agendas, but look to see where Jesus is going and that's where they're going. How many times do we pray and say, Jesus, I'm doing this. Come with me and do this. This isn't what they do. They pray, Jesus, show me where you're going so that I can follow at your heels. Let me follow you wherever you're going, Jesus. 
even if that leads into suffering and pain and death, if you are there, I will follow you there. And so the question we must ask ourselves with this is who are we following? Are we following our friends at school? Or are we following Jesus wherever he goes? They've kept themselves pure and they follow the lamb wherever he goes. The third characteristic he says is they've told no lies. And here it's helpful to remember that it was in John's gospel that Jesus is quoted quoted as saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. For John, Jesus is the truth and everything else that claims to be truth is a lie. When he says they've told no lies, again, they've only confessed that Jesus is God. When the emperor says, bow down to this statue of me, he's telling a lie. When the emperor gives out coins that claims to be Lord and God, he, that is a lie. Those who worship the emperor, those who worship anything other than God, for John, are liars. And so these people have placed God in the spot where he's supposed to be as God and has worshipped him. And so therefore, they tell truth. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves about this is, do I tell truth? And this isn't just the words we say, but the ways that we live. Do I live a life that confesses that Jesus is my Lord and God? Or do I live a life that confesses something else is God? When I'm, at my, when I'm at school, do my friends look at me and say, oh yeah, your life says that you follow Jesus? Or does it say that I follow my friends more? Or that I follow money more? Or that grades rule my life? Do I tell truth with my life? These are the three characteristics. They've kept themselves pure. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. And they have told no lies. In the face of great opposition, causing suffering, pain, and death, these 144,000 persevere. They remain holy by keeping their eyes solely on Jesus. And when we are in suffering and pain and in the midst of death, it's really hard to keep our eyes on Jesus, isn't it? It's hard to keep motivated, to keep persevering through suffering. You see, when we do something like a puzzle... We can see, every time I say puzzle, Miriam looks up. <laughs> we, if we persevere, we will get some satisfaction, like, I mean, pretty soon. It might take a week, it might take a month, but if we keep plugging away, we will get satisfaction. We get little bits of satisfaction when we finally get a piece in the right spot. But we get ultimate satisfaction from this puzzle when we look and we see that it is finished. There's no guarantee that when we persevere through our suffering in real life and we're surrounded by death and disease, there's no guarantee that we're going to feel that satisfaction during our lifetime. And so it can be hard to persevere. It doesn't always give us immediate satisfaction. And so John is trying to encourage his churches to keep persevering because while you might not get that satisfaction during this life, what you choose to do will have eternal consequences. 
those internal consequences, if you persevere through that suffering, if you don't bow down to anything that the world is telling you to bow down to and only bow down to Jesus, is you will receive that mark on your head that says Jesus and Yahweh. You will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, and you will receive rest from your labors. And so the greatest encouragement that John gives his suffering readers is shown in this next section of chapter 14. In it, John is saying that God is the ruler yet. It may seem like Rome is in control, but God is the ultimate ruler. And so there's three angels that are sent out. Verses 6 to 7 talk about the first one. And I saw another angel flying through the sky, carrying the eternal good news to proclaim to the people who belong to this world, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Fear God, he shouted. Give glory to him. For the time has come when he will sit as judge. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all springs of water. This is mercy to those people on earth who have taken the mark of the beast, who have already started worshiping the world. God is saying, come to me and worship me. He gives one last appeal to them to repent, to turn from their idol worship and come back and worship God. Because Jesus has defeated sin on the cross, because Jesus has defeated death through his resurrection, you can have eternal life if you come and confess Jesus as Lord. That's what this angel is proclaiming. The encouragement for those who have already confessed Jesus as Lord, those who are suffering at the hands of the empire is this. The hour is coming when God's reign will be fully established on earth. Soon he will make all things new and dwell with his people on earth. Soon Rome won't be in control at all. It will only be God. So persevere. Keep going. The hour is coming. God is coming. The second angel brings another message in verse 8. Then another angel followed him through the sky, shouted, Babylon is fallen. That great city is fallen. Because she made all the nations of the world drink the wine of her passionate immorality. Babylon is the ultimate expression of God's, or of humanity's attempt to put themselves in the place of God. In the Old Testament, Babylon was the great enemy of Israel that conquered them and took them away from their city and set themselves up as God. They thought Israel's God was nothing because we were able to take you. And just in the Old Testament, God proclaimed that Babylon would fall. It came to pass. And now um, John is continuing in that, transit, uh, that tradition. He's calling Rome Babylon because Rome is doing the same thing as Babylon does. It says, bow down and worship the emperor. It puts the emperor, it puts the nation in the place of God. And so God says it will fall. And it was guaranteed to fall. They're so assured that it will that the angel talks about it as if it's already happened. Fallen is Babylon. And so the encouragement for those who are suffering is this, that everything that stands against the God that you worship will fall. Anything that tries to put itself in the place of God will not last. Everything that uses violence and force to try to get people to worship it will not be successful and will be defeated by God. So persevere, because those who persecute you, those who cause you to suffer, will not last. 
God is coming. And Rome and Babylon is as good as dead. The third angel is sent out, and it says this. Then a third angel followed him, shouting, Anyone who worships the beast and his statue or accepts his mark on the forehead or on the hand must drink the wine of God's anger. It has been poured full strength into God's cup of wrath, and they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever, and they will have no relief day or night, for they have worshipped the beast and his statue and have accepted the mark of his name. The beast, again, is contrasted with the way of God in here. We read something like this, and uh, it's really hard for us to see uh, God's mercy in such a thing of judgment. The beast says, worship me or else I will kill you. Jesus has laid down a choice to people. He doesn't force anyone to worship him. He says, this is what I've done. Jesus has come down to earth. He has lived the perfect life. He died on the cross for your sin so you could defeat sin. He raised again three days later so he could defeat death so that death won't have its grip on you and you just have to come and confess Jesus is Lord. But that's your choice. Whose mark are you going to take? Are you going to take the world's mark, that 666 on your hand or your forehead? Or are you going to take God's mark? He gives them a choice. Because God has already defeated Babylon, God has already defeated sin, and God has already defeated death through Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection from the tomb, those who choose to align themselves with Rome have chosen to align with an already defeated enemy. So those who have chosen to take on the mark of the beast have chosen to share the same fate as that beast. They've chosen the defeated enemy. They've chosen wrath over um, salvation. So John has brought all this to say persevere keep going. He summarizes basically chapters 12 to 14 in verse 12 here. This means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently, obeying his commands and maintaining their faith in Jesus. Keep going, persevering. Babylon has fallen. God is coming. If you persevere to the end, you will get the mark on your forehead and you will have eternal life living with Jesus. And he continues to encourage them in verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this down. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, they are blessed indeed for they will rest from their hard work for their good deeds follow them. Those who persevere, those who remain pure, who follow the lamb wherever he goes and who tell no lies will receive rest from their hard work. Chapters 12 to 14 is setting the stage for the rest of Revelation. Throughout the rest of Revelation, Babylon is going to be judged, and all those who have chosen to follow Babylon share its same fate, and blessing is given to those who follow Jesus. This is an encouragement for all suffering people to persevere. You may be suffering a loss of friendships, 
because you follow Jesus. Perhaps you're suffering from illness, from broken relationships, loss of job, loss of loved ones. These are all suffering. It may not be a direct correlation with your worship of Jesus, but it's still suffering. And pain and death and suffering and sadness are all tools of Babylon. John says, if you keep persevering through your suffering, you will receive rest from your labors. And this rest is spelt out later in Revelation. And I'm stealing someone's thunder, whoever is preaching this. But this is my favorite passage in scripture. So I'm going to do it anyway. This is what it's rest from. It says in uh, Revelation 21, after heaven comes down to earth, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. And then it spells out what this rest from labor looks like. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. This is the ultimate encouragement to persevere through suffering because suffering and pain and death are the tools of the dragon, of the world, of Babylon. And persevering through it, you will receive eternal life if you keep your eyes on Jesus because Jesus is going to defeat all of those things. If you persevere and stay in the Lord, you will be blessed with eternal rest from pain, from death, from suffering. What underlies this passage, it's kind of a secondary point of this passage, is that even in the midst of suffering, God's gospel goes out. Into Babylon, Jesus sends his messenger with the good news to bringing more to himself. And this is a message to us that our perseverance matters not only so that we will receive the eternal reward at the end, but for those around us. The way that you persevere and the way that you suffer can be the strongest witness to God's kingdom. We see it throughout the world The places where the church is persecuted the harshest is where the church grows the fastest and the strongest. The way you suffer, if you persevere through it, keeping your eyes on Jesus, shows that you have a great hope. And this world needs hope. We see it in our news every day that this world needs hope. And the way you suffer that illness, the way you suffer being shunned by other people, the way you hold on to Jesus above everything else sends a message to the world that there's something bigger than the suffering. Jesus sends his messengers into Babylon to call people to himself, and we are sent to be his messengers. So you all have postcards either on your chair, you might be sitting on it, or around you. It has a bunch of the Christmas happenings that are going on. Christmas tales, Christmas Eve services, uh, kids program where we have all the cute kids come up and sing. And so our takeaway for you 
is on the back, uh, there should be a space to write the name, names of three people or families. And we want you to be intentional in praying for them and to invite them out to one of these Christmas things or one or more of these Christmas things. Because seriously, Christmas is probably one of the easiest times you can invite someone to church and get a yes. It's still, that tradition is just still uh, rooted in our, in our culture, that Christmas is a time that you go to church. You are being sent as messengers out into the midst of a world that is suffering to give a message of hope. And so this is the challenge for you is to persevere through that suffering for the eternal prize and to be a witness to the hope that Jesus gives us. We are going to go now into our time of worship. And as has been available during the first set of worship songs, we're going to have a prayer area in the back there for you to go. And we have some anointing oil there. And it is a symbol of that mark on your forehead that says Jesus, Yahweh on it. A mark of allegiance to God. Perhaps you've never pledged that allegiance before. I would encourage you to go back there. There'll be James and Allie and Curtis. And pray with them and receive that anointing oil as a symbol of the mark that is placed on your forehead that says you belong to Jesus and belonging to Jesus, that mark can never be snatched away from you. So head to the back and pray. Perhaps you're in the midst of some suffering right now, broken relationships, illness. Go back and receive prayer. Receive that anointing as a reminder that you belong to Jesus and not even death or broken relationships or pain or suffering can separate you from Jesus. Make use of the prayer area over there. There's comfy couches and everything there. So make sure you go back and receive prayer if you need it. We're going to continue in worship and song, joining those who are worshiping with God in front of his throne.